Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 19 for the reading of the text this morning. Psalm chapter 19. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11 of Psalm chapter 19. Um, and I would ask you to read aloud with me when we get to verse 7 through 11. Let's read those verses aloud together. So if you don't have your Bible open, I'll give you one more chance. Crack that thing open. If you don't know where the Psalms are, it should be right down the middle. Open your Bible in the center. You should find it. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, there's a paperback Bible in front of you. If you don't own one or have one today, that's our gift to you. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. When you get to Psalm 19, verse 1, say, He paid it all. All right, upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and you respond with thanks be to God. And don't forget, you're joining me in verse 7 through 11. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Join me in verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Parker Williams. For those of you that do not know, I, uh, one of my roles here is I direct our community groups. <clears throat> and as you will recognize, I'm not Jason. Jason this morning, in our nice briskness here in Popper Bluff, is in Florida. So be sure to uh, rag him a little bit for that when he gets back. Um, how many of you have young children? Actually, actually before we begin... Next week, when Jason does get back, we are going to be jumping back in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So, I think we have a slide for that. But as we get going, this next week, as we prepare for that, refresh on where we've been on the Sermon on the Mount and kind of read forward a little bit in anticipation of what Jason's going to be talking about. That'll really prepare you well for when he gets back and, and, and brings us into that text. But how many of you have small children, okay? So, you know that there are some movies that kids just latch onto and watch over and over. And over and over and over and over and over and over and over, right? This is a blessing and it's a curse sometimes, right? Because those songs get stuck in your head and it's like they just, there's this little gnat just gnawing on the back of your brain stem all day long, right? But it's also a bit of a blessing because you can turn that sucker on and they're going to check out for a little bit, at least for a brief period of time. Well, we just had our second child in November, but my oldest daughter is about to turn two in February. And thankfully, she's only turning two because if she had been a little older, she would have been exposed to that movie Frozen, which many of you know very well. I don't get that movie. Maybe it's appropriate I mention it this morning. But Elsa's not even the main character, right? I watched this recently, and everybody's all talking about Elsa and the doll. Anyway, I don't get it. But what my daughter really is locked in on is Trolls. You remember this movie? This is actually a good one. I enjoy this one. Shoot, Justin Timberlake's in it, and the album's great, right? Well, Trolls is a really interesting movie if you haven't seen it. The premise is 
there are these bad guys, the Bergens, right? And they're miserable creatures. The only way they can be happy is by eating these little critters named trolls who are overly happy. They have a watch, and it goes off every 30 minutes, and they hug every 30 minutes, right? These are annoyingly happy critters that they have to eat to be happy and to be fulfilled. But what happens is the head chef, who on this next slide is over here on the right, who is in charge of preparing all these trolls and serving them to their, her people, the Bergens, loses them. They escape, right? They come out of their tree, dig burrows, and, and run off. And there is a crisis because the only way a Bergen can be happy is by eating a troll. And so you've got King Gristle, and you have his son, the prince, and the, the, the trollstice, the big celebration where they come and partake of their happiness, they're gone. And this is supposed to be Prince Gristle's first taste of a troll. And there's this great scene after they run the, the chef out of town, and they blame her for all their problems, where Prince Gristle comes up to his dad, the king, and says this. He says, but daddy, I never got a troll What's going to make me happy now? And the king says, come here, son. And he picks him up and he sits him on his lap. And he says, nothing. Absolutely nothing will ever make you happy. And so the movie goes on and the Bergens are miserable, right? They're, they're searching for their trolls. And, and there's a scene towards the end where the young prince Gristle meets a young scullery maid named Bridget, right? And for the first time, he starts to experience a little something of happiness that he doesn't realize well, fast forward a little bit further, and towards the end of the movie, they finally get some trolls, bring them into this big dinner, and, they, and Gristle realizes, I've been happy without ever eating a troll. And somebody in the back stands up and says, no, everybody knows you can't be happy without eating a troll, right? Right? We do this same thing. Do we not? So as the Bergens could not come to the realization that trolls were the only thing that, that would not fulfill them, They had to learn a new story. They had to learn a new narrative. So here we are, the awkward week in between Christmas and New Year's. Christmas is over. All the anticipation with the gifts and the decorations and the family and the celebration. And at the end of the day, we just feel kind of bloated, wore out, exhausted, and a little disappointed that it did not live up to all the hype that we had put on it. And what I don't understand is the week after Christmas, there is glitter everywhere. I don't understand this. Nothing in the presents or anything else had glitter, but you start cleaning it up and there's glitter everywhere. It's not even the big glitter that you can pick up. It's that fine dust of glitter that just sticks to everything. It annoys me. So we're in this, this, this week, this awkward week of the, the, the anticipation of Christmas gone and the struggle of thinking back over 2017 and looking forward to New Year's. And what do we do? We think... Well, there are some things in 2017 that I didn't really care for. So I'm going to make some resolutions, and next year is going to be different, whether that is losing 10 pounds to start working out, saving money. There's this somewhat deep-seated discontentedness that runs like a thread through our years. And every year around this time, start picking up resolutions. I don't know if you're that way. I don't really pick up resolutions. A lot of us do. It's a really popular thing, but I I, I bet you are at least thinking of a few things that you would like to do different going into 2018. Do you know how many resolutions succeed? Do you know what February is for? February is for failure, okay? Only 8% of resolutions make it towards the new year, and 80% of those stop in the failure month of February, whether that is your workout plan. That's when I'll be going back to the gym. It's about that time when all you guys fall out. Or the, the losing of the weight or the reading of Scripture. You get into Leviticus, and it gets tough, right? Well, what we are seeing today in this text is that delight cannot be pursued through the achieving of our goals, 
but it only ensues through the direction of our desires. Now hang with me a little bit. I'm going to have to unpack this statement. So keep your Bible with you. Keep it open, seriously, because at some point we're all going to be reading Scripture together again. So keep that open. And we're going to start in verse 1. So this psalm, remember the psalms are the prayer book of Israel, right? It's not so much always God dictating something to man, but it's the the community of Israel lifting up their voice in song and praising God for the way they see him working around them. So the first part of this kind of describes the whole point of the psalm. The whole point of the psalm is wisdom, divine wisdom that God is declaring from one side of creation to the other in both general and specific ways. In the first section there, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day by day he pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So he's through his created world, he is spewing this divine wisdom at all corners. So the first thing we see is that there are two books in God's created world. One is the book of God's world. The second is the book of God's word, which we're going to get into here in a minute. But what we see in the book of God's world is that creation is good is that creation is an aspect that he has crafted in a particular way and that we can find him through that. Francis Bacon said it in this way. He said, No man upon weak conceit of sobriety or ill-applied moderation should think or maintain that a man can search too far or be too well studied in the book of God's word or the book of God's world, divinity or philosophy, but progress or proficiency in both. Only let men be aware that they apply both to charity and not to swelling. So what he's saying there is that we can see God in creation and that the creation is coherent, okay? So there's not these mysteries out there that are going to contradict the word, right? The two books of God's word and his world do not contradict. So if there is a contradiction in one of the two, it must be in ourselves, It must be in our interpretation of that. So whether it is a scientist discovering something in creation, in the world around us, or it's what we understand in the word here, neither can contradict, only our interpretation of how they they mesh. Remember that as we go on. But the first thing we see in the book of God's world is there in 5a, the sun. The sun. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. So none of us really believe that the son is going out to get married every morning when he steps out, right? Galileo would say it this way, is that the the book of God's word tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So we learn poetically through Psalms about what is the purpose, the meaning that God could be communicating to us through his created order. So, But the first thing I see is that the son appears so disciplined. If we look at this poetically, right, every morning it gets out and it does its thing from one end to the other and it runs its course with joy like a strong man running its course. Single-minded obedience. The task set before the sun is what it pursues single-mindedly. But secondly, it's almost like the desires of the sun are perfectly in line with the task before it. Look at that. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's risings from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its seed. It's like the task set before the sun is perfectly in line with what it desires to do. I think that's our big disconnect. Is that we get up in the morning and we've got the job and we've got the mortgage and we've got the thing and we've got the, the wrestling of the kids and the diapers and all that. And it's almost like there's this, this disconnect between the tasks before us 
and the desires and the motivations of our hearts, unlike the sun. The sun, we see, is just as much as part of the created order as we are, or should I say, we are just as much a part of the created order as the sun, and yet it lives fully by accomplishing that which it was created for. So, just as there's no contradiction between the book of God's word and the book of God's world, there's no contradiction necessarily between our tasks and our desires. So where's the problem? The problem has to lie in us. If our desires don't match the tasks before us, what should be the problem? The tasks or our desires? So let's get into the second one, right? So we're talking about divine wisdom. The one we just went through is the book of God's world. Now we're looking at the specifics of how God speaks to us in laying out our purpose. Much like the sun runs from one end to the other, God lays out his purpose in this next section, the second book. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoicing of the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, righteous altogether, and it's more to be desired than fine gold. And sweeter also than honey. The poetry here is tying us back into the sun. It says this, if the sun touches everything, which is what it's saying, nothing is hidden from its heat, so then does the law of the Lord touch everything. But how is that, right? Unless you're maybe a a trial lawyer or something, I doubt you're really flipping through case law and really loving and meditating and desiring the laws and the statutes of whatever. So there must be something missing here. What is the law of the Lord? The law of the Lord is not a set of rules and stipulations that we have to follow clearly because how could you consider that more precious than gold and sweeter than honey? The law of the Lord is primarily a story. It's a narrative. See, from the very beginning of creation to the consummation of creation, God is telling one grand story, one narrative. He played this out throughout Israel, right? So at the Passover, it would say, you would bring your children and you would teach them these things. Tell them the story because this grand narrative is the one great truth that brings meaning. So hear it like this. The Bible then, here's one great definition I found of Scripture this week is the received story about what the author of the story has done, is doing, and will do, as written by the people he is doing it through. So he's telling a grand story through creation. So in Genesis 1, right at the beginning, he comes in and there's chaos. And he starts bringing order to the chaos. And he's separating the light from the darkness and and the water from the, the ground. And he starts bringing these things. And he's fundamentally bringing order to the chaos that is around him. And after each time he does something like this, he says this word, it is good, it is good, it is good. And that's the Hebrew word tob, it is tob, tob. And what that word means is a little different than, it's not necessarily perfection how we would think, but it's kind of like this. Pilot gets in his seat, right? You've been on a plane, and you can think of how he goes through the, the checklist. I don't know what you check, the landing gear, fuel, blinkers, windshield, I don't know what you check, right? But he's saying after each one, it is good. It is good. It is good. He's checking off his list. He's seeing that this plane is ready to go somewhere. Okay? So then he says, and he turns to creation, and he says, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish in the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he has created and and brought order to chaos in his creation. And he's given us a garden, and he places us in it. And it's like he hands over the controls. He says, here. Steer my creation, because you are my image, my authority here on this this created order. 
And then if sin had never entered into the picture, we're going to fast forward to Revelation 21, and it says, I see a city coming out of the heavens, the new Jerusalem, and God is with his people fully. So if we didn't have sin, the Bible would essentially be a pamphlet going from the created order of a garden and morphing into this big city where God is fully there with his people. But we had a problem. We decided we wanted to be our own author, and we could write a better story. So we rebel. Sin enters the world. Death overtakes the, and, uh, the world and, brings us, and throws us back into chaos. So he goes and finds one man, and he calls him out as an individual, makes him a people, Abraham, right? He says, I will bless you, and many nations will come out of you for the sake of the world. And he redeems Israel. And we see this throughout the Old Testament as he's constantly redeeming individuals and making them and bringing them into a community from which he can bring his redemption to the entirety of creation. Not even just people, but to the the physicality of the world around him. And he redeems a people who celebrates their past and lives into their past, and the grand narrative that they had inherited of being called out of Egypt as slaves defined their values and, and who they were to where that law could be lived out into everyday reality. He's calling a people out. If we think of Scripture then as a set of rules and doctrines to explain rather than a grand drama we are invited into, we're forced to double down on our eating of trolls, right? keeps coming up. And then Jesus comes in and he says in Matthew 28, as the consummation of God coming and being with his created order and providing a way for that, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, you know this, and make disciples of all nations. And we look at that verse and we think, he said go, right? There's this specificity. We have to go. We have to go do something. Maybe there's a one will for my life that God, it's just this weird thing that I got to go find, kick over the right rock, and maybe a fairy will come out and tell me what God's will is for my life. But that's not what we see in the text in the Matthew 28 of the Great Commission. The emphasis was never on the go. The emphasis was on the therefore, as you are going as you are about your daily work, as you are about the tasks that are before you, be about making disciples of all nations. Be about the physicality of what is our everyday, of bringing that created order into the everyday and living through it. You see, all stories answer a few things. And whether or not you realize it, you are living as a character in a story. Either the grand narrative that we see throughout Scripture or one that you've created on your own. The ancients had a way of thinking about this called myth. And myth does not mean fantasy. A myth just means the grand narrative that we find ourselves in that gives value to us, that we, how we understand the world around us, how we understand where we are, who we are. And these are the big aspects of narrative. It tells us and defines for us who we are, where we are, what our problem is or what went wrong, and how we fix it. What's the solution? So there's a lot of big categories of narrative that we can find ourselves in, whether that is the political narrative, right? The Republicans or the Democrats or whoever my guy is, that is the one thing, and the problem is those other people over there, and I am the voter or the patriot or whoever, and that is what's going to solve the world. That's the big problem. But what that is is a small substory in the grand narrative that so often deceives. Or maybe... Maybe it's, I'm the martyr. I'm always the one who's hurt. I'm the victim. I'm the one who has to live here, and everybody's against me, and if they could just get their stuff straight, then maybe, you see, there's always some kind of narrative. 
Or maybe it's the, the consumption, of the acquisition of material goods, or the pleasure, or the work, or the job that describes my value and my worth. Whatever it is, there is a narrative, an overarching myth that is defining our values and our character. And what we see in the grand narrative is there's a way to diagnose our story. We have to diagnose where we're at. Because the last chunk there is all about being deceived. We're so easily deceived. But when I talk to people, and when we start talking, and we talk about you know, what, what's going on in their life, or what's going on in their day, or what they're really frustrated or upset about, I can tell, and we can all tell and diagnose what narrative we are living in by answering these few questions. A few things that help us to open our eyes a little bit to what our narrative may be. So the first one is this. Where do you find your significance? What is it that you think makes you a worthwhile human being? What is it that is the one thing that when you're not forced to think about something else, your mind gravitates towards? Where do you find your significance? Where are you most worthy? What gives you meaning? These are progressive. So secondly, how seriously do you take your sin? Do we even think about the things we do as sin? John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Do we understand sin as the breach in the grand narrative, in the created order that is around us, that is bringing death and chaos into our lives and into the lives of everyone around us? Or is our sin just something we did wrong? Try, try better next time. Do we grieve over our sin as that which held Jesus on the cross that is worthy of death because it ushers in death? Or do we understand our sin as just something I could maybe make a resolution and do better at? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. How do you understand your sin? Do you have your Bible? Remember, got it open to chapter 19. We're going to read this together because this is the attitude of someone who understands sin and understands the depth of what it does to us and understands how deceptive it is and how it co-ops the story. So we're going to read this together starting in verse 12. Okay? Ready? Here we go. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do we take our sins seriously? And lastly, there in how we diagnose our narrative, and this is the big one. This is the one that really will clue our hearts in, clue us into whether or not we are living a false and poor narrative. What is your attitude towards the word of Jesus? And most specifically, when we get into the Sermon on the Mount again next week. Listen to that. Do you trivialize the words of Jesus? Yeah, I know he said that, but what he really means has to be this, because you can't really live like that. you got to do it this way. Right? Or do we just totally discredit it? Oh, that's 2,000 years ago. That's great. That's the religious thing. That doesn't really, that's not in the here and now in my everyday life. What is your attitude towards the words of Jesus? A few weeks ago, maybe in last week, when Jesus, uh, Jason was talking about the Song of Simeon, and then he, he spoke out of Luke 2, where Jesus was brought into the temple and Simeon saw him. And it says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And hear this, 
so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Your attitude and your response, your initial knee-jerk reaction to the words of Jesus reveal the posture of your heart and the narrative that you have bought into. We have to be putting ourselves into the words of Jesus and hearing the narrative from God himself in order to understand the narrative that we are living in and to direct the desires of our hearts. Only when our desires match the grand narrative is our direction as delightful as the sun's is. The grand narrative brings that into our everyday life. So what does that mean? If we think of law, right, we think of what we talked about earlier, the law and Scripture only applies to certain points, when, and it's really weird. And it's kind of, but if we understand Scripture as this grand narrative that God is telling from one end to the other, then it brings it in the here and now. And I thought of it like this. I've heard it applied like this. Are you familiar with improv? Improvisation, right? So you may remember this show, um, Whose Line Is It Anyway? That's probably the most popular one. It's been gone for a little bit, but I love that show, right? So improv is basically this. There are some actors on a stage, right? And there is a narrator or somebody off to the side who says, all right, you're this guy, and this is the situation you're in. Ready, go. And you see what happens. Improv is this kind of disciplined spontaneity. It's not just about being funny, but it's about living into that, that, that character and that, that, that scene in a real way. So, in fact, NPR did a, a, a piece a few months ago on uh, the history of improv. Some guy had come out with a new book, and he was talking about it. And I loved what he had to say. He said, good improv is not about being funny, necessarily. SNL would be an example of that kind of improv. But good improv is bringing the reality of the overarching narrative and character assignment into the present scene in a real way. Disciplined spontaneity. And they kept talking about discipline and freedom and being free in the sin. And when we are living in this grand narrative, when we understand the grand narrative to assign our character and to describe the world around us and to live into that that he has enabled us to do, then all of a sudden I get to bring that order to chaos in the lives around me. The tasks before me are proclaiming and delighting in God. That I can then, that person that is sinned against me or annoying me, that I bring the redemption and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ into that real, everyday scenario. It's the here and now. It's the therefore as you are making disciples. It's the grand narrative giving meaning and purpose into the here and now, everyday tasks. So how do we join into that? Because if that is really what Scripture says is the only way that we can be truly delighted and not be chasing after trolls all the time, which is what we do is equally as ridiculous, how do we get into that story? The first one is this. you got to enter it. We enter through the waters of baptism as we sung about earlier. When we come into baptism, it is first this. We are giving up our small stories and our deceived stories for the grand narrative that we lay that behind, we died to ourselves, and we pick up what he says life is like, not how I imagine it to be. And I leave that behind me, and I walk through those, that blood of those waters. But secondly, if you have gone through that, we have to allow the grand narrative to expose our false one. And this comes from putting ourselves into Scripture daily at a set time, through rhythms, and through discipline. Because listen, you're not the exception. You will be equally as deceived by your sin as anyone else that Scripture speaks about. 
And unless we put ourselves into that narrative daily through a rhythm of godliness, we will fall into the deception that the psalmist speaks about. We put ourselves into it. Dallas Willard speaks of it in this way, of the discipline. He said, one must intend to do it. And then one must sensibly implement the means. Putting on the new person, growing in grace, is something we must do. Appropriate action is the key. The path of spiritual growth and the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. Paul, who perhaps understood grace better than any other human being, looked back at what had happened to him and said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So improv. One thing they talked about on that NPR piece I was telling you about is is they kept using the words discipline and freedom. Discipline and freedom. The discipline to stay in the character and to remember the grand narrative and the freedom to be and act who they were and who they are. See, discipline. Discipline is the price of freedom. And freedom is the reward of discipline. When we discipline ourselves in the scripture, we live into that. And it becomes a real present joy that abides in us. You see, discipleship is less about resolutions to complete and more about rhythms to cultivate in order for our desires to be molded into the purpose that they are intended for. So here's how we do this. Ready? You've got your, uh, your pamphlet, your, uh, your bulletin with you. In the middle of that is a Bible reading plan. There's a Bible reading plan. Jason wrote this, and he put through and, and tried to bring in the big aspects of the grand narrative. And for 30 days, we will spend time in that, putting ourselves in that narrative and reading it and making it part of our every day. So there's a few ways you have to do that. You got you to have a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're planning to fail, right? We have to have a plan and a set time and space. For me, I get up another 30 minutes early in the morning. And I make a spot there, and I have a, one place that I go to, and one time that every morning I make this rhythm. That's just something that i got to do. It's like brushing my teeth. I still do that sometimes. Make that part of your everyday. Make that part of the rhythm. You've got to have a plan. And then to enable you and help you with that plan, there's another resource that we're going to give you that's going to be posted on our website. It's from a friend of mine down in Texas at the Trinity Mission. And what he's talking about is a rule of life. A rule of life. And what this is, this isn't a set of rules and laws that just kind of measure our failures, right? This, we, we want to write down and describe what kind of person that I want to be. So this evening while you're waiting and staying up for midnight or whatever, because I'm not going to be, I'll tell you that right now. But while you're staying up, read through this and think about the kind of person you want to become. Not just in 2018, but think about the kind of legacy that you want to leave behind. What do you want people to say about you? How do you want the grand narrative to be lived through your life? And get your family together, especially get your community group together if you're a meeting this week or next week or whenever that is, and talk through this rule of life. So the the link for this will be on our Facebook page. Click on that, read through it, and it has examples of how to structure your rule of life, how to implement a Bible reading plan. And then use this reading plan that we've given you to, to dive into Scripture and begin this rhythm and this discipline of stepping into the grand narrative. But just as Jesus, just as God did not live Israel alone, 
to create or innovate on this, this grand narrative. So did Jesus give us a tangible, everyday physicality of his presence. Because that's what is at the end of the Great Commission, is that he promises to be with us until the end of the world in a very physical and real way. These elements. Jesus promised to be, physical, to be present and to mold us through these elements as we pick it up and as we remember the story, the grand narrative, it becomes a present reality for us that we as the community of God, as the redeemed people of God, mold us and to allow us to bring that narrative, that, that reality to the world around us. So remember and think through these things as you hold the blood shed for us and the body that was broken. And that we pray. We give thanks to you, O God, for the goodness and love which you have made known to us in creation and the calling of Israel to be your people. In your words spoken through the prophets and above all in the word made flesh, Jesus, your son, for in these last days you sent him to be incarnate from the Virgin Mary, to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world. In him you have delivered us from evil and made us worthy to stand before you. In him you have brought us out of error into truth, out of sin into righteousness, and out of death into life. On the night when he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread And when he had given thanks to you, Lord, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you do it, Do this in remembrance of me. Recalling now his suffering and death and celebrating his resurrection and ascension, we await his coming in glory. Accept, O Lord, our sacrifice of praise, this memorial of our redemption. Send your Holy Spirit upon these gifts. Let them be for us the body and blood of your Son and grant that we who eat and drink this cup may be filled with your life and goodness. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him and in the unity of the Holy Spirit. All honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. And in the words of St. Augustine, behold what you are and become what you receive.